Welcome to episode 14 of This Is You podcast. I'm Scott Stewart, and I'm Carol Yu. Today, we are interviewing the Michelangelo of the baking world. Food Network Cake Wars winner Chantal de Bergosian sets big goals and meets them using her business acumen and her extreme creativity. We talked to her about her engineering a Daft Punk-inspired cake that moves and spins, baking for Gordon Ramsay, Ron Ben Israel, and spirituality. But first, a new segment. Zoom, Zoom, Zoom. In the last few weeks, I've been on many, many Zoom calls. I've had work meetings. I've had friends who have told me that they've had happy hours every Friday on Zoom. My one friend I just spoke with this morning said that she connects with all of her friends from Italy, where she lived before she had to be quarantined back in the U.S., and they would have a pub game every week. And they also have dinner sharing Zoom meetings. But this week, it was really interesting. Our family decided to have a Zoom call with 15 of our family members that live everywhere from Seattle, Washington, to San Francisco, down to us in Los Angeles, and in Joshua Tree. And it's been pretty interesting, hasn't it, Scott? Yeah, it's been really interesting. Actually, this was the second Zoom call that we had. So we now have a standing Saturday night Zoom call. The first one, it was a lot of just talking about what's what, how everyone's doing. It was more like the technical day-to-day ins and outs of life. Yeah, pretty much our usual discussion with my family. Our family's always been just very practical, talking about the weather, what are the kids doing. Um, My family is very into church, so what's going on at church? And we've been talking about uh, kids and what we've been doing in our daily lives. But this time it was different. Carol and I decided to switch things up on the second Family You phone call. I listened to a lot of podcasts during the week when I'm out exercising, just walking around and I do social distance big time. Anyway, listen to a lot of podcasts. And one of the ones I listen to a lot is Oprah's Super Soul Conversations. And the particular one that I listened to was The Path Made Clear. So Oprah had this new book out. She had a bunch of guests. She just basically had clips from these people talking, they were dropping bombs of wisdom. You would just hear a little clip of all of these really interesting people. So it was sort of a highlight reel of a highlight reel. Sent this to Carol, she had to listen to it. And then in turn, she sent it up to her family and her mom specifically asked everyone to listen to it. Although she called it a video instead of a podcast. Yeah, your mom kept calling it a video (laughs) and everyone was trying to correct her on that. And I just left it at just calling it a video after a while. She didn't want to change her mind on that. Anyway, it presented itself in this last Zoom call we had, and it really changed the dynamic of the call. I think the feedback we got was that it became more dynamic, I think was the the key of it. It nurtured conversations, it sparked conversations. Because it has an element, a spiritual element to it, you know, it's always, uh, they say never talk about religion or spirituality in groups, but it seemed to go over really well. 
People had a lot of opinions on it. And we just sort of used the Oprah book as a cornerstone because we had all listened to the podcast and we used to move the conversation forward. Basically, the Oprah Super Soul podcast that we listened to called The Path Made Clear, the description is, if you are feeling stuck or at a crossroads and wondering if there is more to life, The Path Made Clear provides inspiration and guidance to help you discover not only who you are, but who you are meant to be. So some of the things we talked about were were meditation. So my mother has been very interested in meditation for years, and she's always encouraging us kids, I have two younger sisters, and our families to meditate. And in this discussion, we actually found out everyone meditates, even without having to be prompted by my mother. But we, we found that everyone does it in different ways. Yeah, and it was really great to hear how they interpreted meditation and how they interpreted the world. It was really inspiring. I thought it was a really, really good share that everyone got in there. We also talked about children's paths and how do you raise children to follow their dreams? Because there are a couple cousins that are eight years old, um, nine years old, 10, 12 years old, all the way up to my daughter, oldest daughter, who's 25. And my older daughter, daughter, Elena, is an artist and has known since she was in high school that she'd wanted to be an artist. And my youngest daughter, Dara, as you know, we've spoken about her. She's known since she was about 12 that she's wanted to be a chef. Actually, this week, I was looking at some photos of when we went to Italy back in 2009. And there was a photo that says, Dara someday says she wants to be a chef. And that was uh, 11 years ago. So really, what we talked about was how do children figure out how to determine their path? And I guess I'm still really trying to figure out, maybe all of us have some path that we're trying to find, but we don't know exactly where to go. One of the interesting components of the Oprah podcast for me is what she talks about is intention. She said in her career, in the early days of the Oprah show, that she learned about intention and she moved it into a position in the Oprah show where the producers of the show and her had to talk about the intention of the show. And she said once she started talking about intention and bringing intention into her life, it created huge momentum that pushed her career even farther. Just getting back to the dynamic of it, we're maybe putting this in your head so we know that you guys are probably on a lot of Zoom calls over the next period of time. So maybe if you can just sneak a little bit of conversation in there that goes a little bit deeper, you might find an interesting surprise in these times where people open up about things that they might not have opened up about before. I mean, even though you're on a Zoom call, there is sort of that anonymity because you're a step back from people through the technology. And it gives you a little bit of a buffer where you feel like you're safe in your own environment and you can share a little bit more with people than you would if you were at a coffee shop or you were in your business. People are close proximity and you feel guarded. These Zoom calls, I think, are a good way for people to open up and start discussing things that they're worried about, they're excited about, they're inspired by in these times. I I think a little bit of it might be that because we are having to stay at home for now, I think this is maybe the third or fourth week that people are starting to crave communication and to be able to connect with others. And it's very interesting because for a technology like Zoom to go and be able to facilitate that communication within my family has really been something that's pretty joyful. 
And I'm very looking forward to seeing how it goes in the future, if our family will continue to be able to communicate better using Zoom. And just a pro tip for you guys, don't forget to password protect your Zoom calls. There's been a lot of Zoom bombing going on. Rather than being on a call with grandmother and having a guy come on half naked, uh, (laughs) just use a password protection. That brings us to our next new segment called Thinking and doing. Thinking versus doing. So this past weekend, our daughter Dara came up with an idea. She said that for the first two weeks after she got home from baking school from Culinary Institute of America, she was kind of bored because usually her life is very set with classes and with schedules and working. Then it took her about two weeks to realize that she needs to get off her duff and start getting into doing something that is fruitful. And she came up with an idea that last Monday, about a week ago, she posted on her Instagram that she was going to deliver COVID Corona comfort cookies or muffins. So she came up with a really amazing menu. She came up with chocolate chip, oatmeal toffee, orange cranberry shortbread cookies, or blueberry buttermilk, cinnamon crumble coffee cake, or roasted banana bread muffins. And oh my God, those last ones were absolutely amazing. What I found really interesting about Dara in this particular situation is Dara is a very heady person. She does a lot of thinking. She spends a lot of time up in her head. In this particular situation, she actually said it was one of her mantras is just do it. So if she came up against the problem, whether it was the design of the menu through Canva or actually the menu items, she would just keep moving forward and say to herself, just do it, just do it, just do it. She would come to Carol and I and flush out a couple ideas and we helped her. But for the main component of it, Dara did it on her own and she moved it forward, which was really brilliant because she was able to go from zero to delivering these muffins and then getting great reviews on Instagram in a really short period of time. So we're super proud of Dara. It was really excellent because as I'm always the mom wanting to prod my kids to move forward, It took her 30 hours of baking. She stayed up all night on Thursday night baking, and then she brought it to us. We packaged, we labeled, we delivered all of the 21 orders. And of course, Dara wore masks and gloves, and then she dropped everything off at the front porch and then texted the customer that it was there. And we are really proud, as Scott said. Welcome, Chantal, to the This Is You podcast. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here today. Us too. We're super excited that you're here. Let's get to a really hard-hitting question right off the top of the podcast. Are you Betty or Veronica? I am definitely a Team Betty kind of girl, especially after I competed and Veronica gave us so many issues in the competition. (laughs) You had mentioned that you were in a competition. You were in the second season of Cake Wars with an Archie Comics-themed cake. What is the trick to getting on the Food Network? You know, the secret to having Food Network select you is to have the most bubbly, energetic, and extra personality ever on these video submittals you have to make. They are definitely looking for TV personalities. They want natural drama, natural excitement, and they're looking for people to draw viewers to their network. Yeah, we definitely know that because our youngest daughter was the first season of MasterChef Junior runner-up. What? That's like my dream to be on MasterChef. (laughs) Okay, well, we'll put you in contact with them. (laughs) 
So on your... That's, uh, that's amazing. It was really fun. We were sequestered for three weeks and it was the first season of MasterChef Junior. So they really didn't know what to expect with these eight to 13 year old kids. And I think the kids pretty much blew them away and were able to cook just as well as the adults. It was fun. Yeah, I bet. Tell us about Ram Ben Israel. Is he as tough in person as his persona on Sweet Genius? Ron is definitely this uh, sweet man with a very stern side. He can be scary when he doesn't like what you are presenting to him. I saw that side of him when we competed. And it was in um, the first part of our episode. There's, there's two parts, right? You, you have to get through the initial round. One person gets eliminated or one team gets eliminated. And then you make it over to the final round. And I saw him chew through the contestant that got eliminated. And yes, it's scary. It's, uh, <laughs> he's very tough when he wants to be. But on the flip <laughs> side, he's also the sweetest human being you've ever met. <laughs> and so he definitely has that dichotomy. Right. So was he the judge that when you were on that show said, we're not sure who's boss in that team? And if he was, what did he mean? <laughs> yeah, that was, that was definitely him. And I didn't even know he said that until I watched the episode on TV with the rest of you. There's a lot the judges say that we aren't aware of as the competitors. And we, it, so watching the episode with all of you is like being one of you. We have no idea what to expect out of the episode or what the judges have said behind closed doors. So when I heard that the first time, oh, it made me laugh big time. What did he mean by that? So if people watch the episode, they'll see that I competed with my mom. She's actually my business partner. She's a dentist full time, but because she's a dentist, she's able to sculpt really well, right? Because she sculpts teeth all the time. Ah. And so I call her in for fondant help whenever I'm, I, I need it. And so when I was selected to compete on Food Network, I thought, what better opportunity than to compete with my mom on national television? now? Because she's my mom, there's that gray area of mother-daughter of who's bossing who around. <laughs> and so right. I constantly had, had to remind her, hey, this is my business and you're my <laughs> assistant today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so so I, I don't remember exactly what was happening. We were probably arguing about how much sugar to add to something or the design of the Veronica in the first round. But um the judges definitely noticed that the ownership of our relationship kept going back and forth. And so has that affected your relationship with her after that? Not at all. We're really good at keeping business and personal aside. She knows my personality the best out of everyone, considering she's my mom. And she knows that once I step into the kitchen, my persona changes completely. I'm, I'm a very sweet person, but in the kitchen, I'm very demanding. And I really look for quality and cleanliness and my vision to come to life. And I'm not flexible with that personality at all. So um, I'm stern. But once we leave the kitchen, we go back to our regular relationship. It's great, actually. That's good. I think I need to learn something from that. My daughter and I, since she goes to the Culinary Institute of America now, mm -hmm. we have some issues when we're in the kitchen together. She has a sign that says, 
on the wall. What what does her sign say, Scott? Something to do with no attitude. It's my kitchen. <laughs> it's tough. Let me tell you, it it is tough, but um, you have to listen as the as a child. You do have to respect the words of your parent, but the parent also has to respect the vision of the child, since the child is the one leading. The kitchen, right? So it, it does take a lot of work from from both parts, but it's very important to leave that behind as soon as you guys leave the kitchen because the relationship shouldn't get strained because of work. Right. Well, I, I actually want your advice on that because Dara and I competed on a pilot for MTV. We were flown down to Miami and she and two classmates from her high school and I as a mom, um, like the mom leader, we all competed mm-hmm. and it was a baking competition. We were set up against two other teams and they had this beautiful set and created an entire world. And it was de- very MTV, like, you know, pimp my crib. So it was a definitely over the top kitchen. Uh-huh. She was really bossy. And I think it came across on the cameras. <laughs> and in the end, they never aired the pilot. So I don't know what we get out of that, but maybe she, I probably don't want to put this on the blog. I mean, on the podcast. Anyway, all right, let's move on. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm definitely bossy as well. And if you did watch the Archie Comics episode, you'll see a little bit of that come out towards the end when we have to carry the cake to the final podium. And that part to me is is a huge jerk move on judges to make us carry such a heavy cake. Because they're doing it on purpose, right? They want to see you drop the cake. And it has happened. I've seen episodes where people do drop their cakes. Oh my gosh. But man, those cakes are so heavy. And my mom is significantly shorter than me. She's like 4'11". I'm 5'4". Wow. And I really, I I expected her not to be too much help, right? (laughs) Because the cake is really heavy. Mm -hmm. But when I carried it with the the two assistants, the weight distribution was really throwing me off. And so I was asking her for help. She wasn't understanding that I needed her to put her hands below the cake. And she kept trying to hold the highest part of the cake, which she couldn't even reach. Mm. And so I was losing my patience in the the show because I could feel the cake slipping through my hands. And I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, it's going to fall. Oh, no. And that bossiness came out. And I was like, Mom, hold the bottom of the cake. (laughs) (laughs) So that's when they went to commercial break and they came back. And I'm not sure if they edited some of that out because I had to put the cake down. And I was like, here. This is the bottom of the cake. This part. (laughs) (laughs) So we had to carry back out. So it happens. I could um, definitely feel for your daughter. I could see how it happens. And maybe I should apologize on behalf of all daughters out there (laughs) in the world. We're we're mean. We're, We're definitely mean. (laughs) <laughs> so, but I think didn't your mom get you back didn't she flip the bird on you no so that wasn't to me oh my gosh <laughs> I couldn't believe it so m- my mom was a walking disaster on this show all right she cut herself she got the most attention from the medical staff <laughs> out of everyone during the entire day we shot she cut herself she burned herself it was nonstop, and so she had burned one middle finger and she cut the other oh. middle finger. And so she bandaged herself. And so I was standing in front of her, but she was facing the judges. And I was like, mom, show me your injuries. And she flipped me, <laughs> not realizing that she was giving me both middle fingers, but they were going straight to the judges. And I was like, oh, 
And, and I turned to them. I was like, that's not what you think this is. <laughs> so they, they did they did keep some of it in the show. Because like I said, they're, they're looking for natural drama. And right. since you obviously have competed before and you have experience in the kitchen, you know that it's really easy to have drama. You don't have to make that up. It happens naturally. I burned chocolate. I almost got eliminated in round one, actually. And that to me was totally total BS because, yes, I burned the chocolate in the microwave because I used a glass bowl, which I wasn't used to doing while melting chocolate. But I did taste it several times before moving forward with making my ganache. And I didn't taste anything burned. And so when the judges were doing their whole judging, they're like, oh, Chantal used burned chocolate. I was like, that's not true. But (laughs) luckily, the, the guy who ended up getting eliminated made a really dense cake. So he got eliminated instead. Yeah, the magic of TV. It changes when it gets produced. Yeah. <laughs> well, now let's change paths. So my daughter, she just started college this past fall. Environmental engineering, I noticed, is a very popular major nowadays. What kind of jobs does an environmental engineer do? Okay, so this topic is a very big passion of mine because I am an environmental engineer and I got my degree back in 2009. Um, If you don't mind, if I give you a little bit of backstory so you could understand why environmental engineers become what they become. Of course. So I'm actually a chemist for my bachelor degree. And when I graduated as a chemist, I had no idea I would end up studying the environment. And what happened was I started traveling extensively after I graduated and I, and I go to a lot of third world countries. And so I, I went to Costa Rica for a month and I traveled through Peru and everywhere I was going, people were striking. And I was like, Hey, you know, I'm fluent in Spanish. So I would go and talk to the locals and ask, Hey, why are you guys striking? And they started telling me how they didn't have clean drinking water and how the government was manipulating their water and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what? So this was a huge eye opener for me, right? Because I'm in the States and we don't have drinking water problems. Unless you live in Flint, Michigan. Exactly. And so I started studying more about it and and it was an eye opener, right? And it led me to environmental engineering. And I learned that environmental engineers clean air, soil, and water. And that really fascinated me. So having a background in chemistry is very helpful because you have to understand chemistry to a certain degree to understand how the earth works. And environmental engineers could work in several different fields. Um, You could work in the field itself, which is where you collect the samples. And let's be honest, this is grunt work. Everyone starts off here. Some people love it and they stay in that field forever. I do not, especially in California where it's hot all the time. I I do not want to be outdoors all the time in California. So um, you do evaluate contamination. And I call us the secret superheroes of the world. People have no idea that we're keeping them safe. We monitor cancer levels and we remove those chemicals from the soil and the groundwater and the air to make sure that you are all living safely in levels that won't create, um, it won't create any sickness or cancers or kill you basically. So I work in the aerospace field actually. And my job is to remediate, that is the formal word of cleaning up, the sites that have been contaminated during World War II era. 
So if you guys remember, there were a lot of aircraft built for World War II. Uh -huh. And back then, people weren't so safe about chemicals and they would dispose them wherever. And that wherever is where we now live. <laughs> so it takes wow. decades to clean all that up. And, you know, um, depending on which state you are in, California, for example, has super stringent environmental laws, which I 100% appreciate. And we spend the time cleaning up the levels to what is acceptable for the states in their definition of keeping the environment and the health of the people safe. So I don't know if that answered your question, but feel free to ask me all questions that you want about this. And especially now, as you guys know, we are in this crisis of the pandemic. And I call this moment job security. Oh, <laughs> gosh. Because <laughs> whatever we do is considered essential for uh, the federals and the state level agencies because we're constantly working hard to keeping everyone safe. That's great. On my own personal note, I used to live in Manhattan Beach, California here, and right in downtown Manhattan Beach, there was Metlock's Pottery, and it had been there forever and ever, and it was on prime real estate, and it just sort of sat empty for years and years and years. And then I guess a developer purchased it, but I heard that they had to go through exactly what you were talking about because there's lead that they used in all the ceramic tiles mm -hmm. and that got into the ground and then they had to go and we saw sort of like filtering machines that went and filtered all the soil like it came up and then it went through a process and they dug down i don't even know how far it was like 10 feet or something into the soil filtered all the soil put it back and then they were allowed to build on it that sounds uh, pretty appropriate so the nice things about metals is that they don't travel, they're dense. Right. So they're the easiest to clean up in soil because you just dig it up and send it out. It's just super expensive, but it's easy to clean up. It's the chemicals that are hard and uh, it's really the dry cleaners have been one of the top problems and so have gasoline stations. Their systems are the ones that have leaked the most into the ground and those chemicals really go in deep down. I mean, it could go as deep as 150 feet of contamination. And so those, that's where it gets a little tricky to clean up because you have to really understand the earth and the soil and the geography and how the groundwater flows. And then if it rains too much, that affects how the water percolates into the ground. So it's, it's pretty cool. It's like a puzzle. It's, an, it's a completely other world. You mentioned that you do have a degree in chemistry. Are there any elements from the periodic table that you use in your baking today? <laughs> so, so for the chemistry and the baking, I don't use my elements unless you consider sodium for the salt. <laughs> right. But, but the chemistry and the engineering have definitely both played a huge part into my cake business. And I try to elicit excitement from people into engineering through my cakes. And one of my first challenges ever was my own birthday cake because I knew no one would pay for this. I made a massive five foot by five foot cake for, for Daft Punk. I don't know if you guys are familiar with them. Yeah, no, no, we, we saw it. It was, it was amazing. Thank you. So that one was, was a huge challenge because one, I had to build the structure and it was my first time ever doing so in an edible Form, and I had to learn what was safe, what was not. And I, I crafted the helmets out of Rice Krispie treats and I, and I had the LED lights in there. Yum. And so it was cool because I collaborated with an engineer to help me code the movements on my cake. I wanted to make sure it was animatronic. 
And so the necks were actually designed out of Lego pieces. So it was, it was a really cool thing all around. And then I made chandelier cakes where they're hanging like chandeliers upside down. And so I, I try to combine both elements, not only because it's super fun for me and I get to combine all my worlds, but I like to encourage them anywhere I go in a whatever form or way. And so this was a way for people to open conversation up and ask me, how did you do that? How did you know how to do that? And then I would discuss engineering with them. Yeah, I mean, to our listeners out there, you've got to see it. It's just phenomenal. Like, it's a cake that moves. It's a robotic cake. We looked at it and we're like, that can't be edible, but it's edible. And best part, it has uh, Rice Krispie squares in it, which is a huge favorite of mine. Your bakery shop, Shakar Bakery, how did you come up with a name for that bakery? So the name of the business is probably the hardest to come up with. And I'm not going to lie, it took me a long time to think of something that was hard to ruin, right? Because if people can't pronounce the name, they're not going to remember the name. They won't know how to spell your website. Yep. And I wanted something clever. So I'm Armenian. I'm South American Armenian, born in USA. I know it's complicated, <laughs> but I wanted to combine all of that. And so shakar in Armenian means sugar. Oh, ah. perfect. Yeah. So I thought it would be an easy way for the Armenian community to remember because everyone will remember shakar. Right. And then for Americans, it's not so hard to pronounce. Mm -hmm. And again, I like to teach people things. <laughs> so people will ask me just like you did. What is shakar? And so I'd be like, oh, it's the Armenian word for sugar. And then some people won't know what an Armenian is. So I give them some background history on that. And then conversation just grows. And also too, if you're from Boston or Brooklyn, you could almost mispronounce that the name of your bakery and actually say sugar in the sense of I put a little bit of shakar on top of it. Yeah. <laughs> That's so true. I never thought of that. Now this next question is a shout out to my brother and nephew who I just spoke with a few minutes ago. They're driving along the 401 in Ontario, Canada, and I was telling them about who you are and everything. So their question was, how long have you had your bakery for? I just celebrated in December my 10th year anniversary. Congratulations. Congratulations. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. So it's, it's um, really funny how the bakery came to happen. Uh, so as you guys know, we're currently in this recession. It's happening right now as we speak. And it's giving me flashbacks because right. in 2009, it happened. Right? And so that's when I graduated with, with my master's degree in engineering. And I was, you know, set to have a great job and everything. But then the recession happened. No one was hiring me. Um, and all my friends happened to get engaged that year. All of them. And I have like seven of them that year. Mm. And so they started talking to me about their wedding planning. And they're like, oh, my gosh, I'm paying $1,200 for my wedding cake. And I was like, wait, what? How much are you paying for a wedding cake? Wow. And then I was like, you know what? I have all this time on my hands. I'm going to teach myself how to make cakes. And I did. I went through it. I practiced. Wow. And two months later, I was like, I'm just going to start my own business. I can't get a job. And so that's what happened. That's how Shakar Bakery was born. And I'm very grateful for the first few guinea pigs that allowed me to make cakes for them. Because after a while, I started to recognize that I really had this talent in me all along. And it was dormant. And the recession helped me find that. So it's been 10 years. 
And there were wonderful, wonderful 10 years. That's awesome. So why is educating the public about cake making costs important? You said that you had friends that were willing to pay $1,200 for a cake. What makes a cake cost $1,200? Before I started the business, I was part of the crowds that were shocked by prices. And I was like, wedding cakes are $1,200? That's insane. Then I started making the cakes and... The ingredients are a small bucket of cost for a cake maker. There is so much involved in making a cake. One, you have to fund your business, right? You have the electric bill, the gas bill, all that. And it has to get taken into account and costs. And then there's the interaction with the customer. There's one bride where I have a hundred email exchanges with, and there's no way you could guess how many times you're going to speak to a client, right? The easy ones, you just meet with them. They tell you what you want. You don't talk to them again until the day of. But aside from the interaction with the customer, the art itself takes a long time. I average on a fast cake, eight hours. And the longest cake that's taken me was a Harry Potter cake I made last year. It took me three months of sculpting. And it was pretty much nonstop. Wow. When you have creative freedom, it's kind of worse for the cake maker because you make things, you take it apart. You make things, you take it apart. <laughs> and all of that cost, you, you kind of lose it. So you have to be smart about your money as a cake maker. But as a consumer, mm-hmm. you're paying for art. It's a very customized cake for your event, for yourself, for your memory. And many times, cake businesses don't replicate designs because it's unique to each individual. So... If you're looking for a custom cake, I mean, you really have to think about what you're asking for this person. You're asking for a piece of art. You're not asking for a regular cake. You want a regular cake, you go to a regular bakery. But for this kind of work, for sculptures and other art forms in in cake, especially anything that moves or is big, expect to spend a couple of thousand dollars on your cake. Well, it's definitely worth it and worth it for the labor and also all the creativity. So let me ask you now, was world traveling something that you were exposed to as a child? Yes, actually it was. I went on my first plane ride when I was six months old. Um, Like I said earlier, I'm South American, Armenian. My parents are from Uruguay and their parents are actually from Armenia and they immigrated to Uruguay. So when my parents moved here, uh, they did so in the late 70s. I was the first to be born here. So at that point, they hadn't been to Uruguay in three years. So they shipped me off with my mom in a plane and we all went to Uruguay in six months. So my first passport has this little baby in it. And from there, it's just nonstop. My parents really wanted to expose us to the world and traveling. And they wanted to make sure that we were diverse in our knowledge. And I'm very grateful for that. And that traveling bug has stayed with me forever. What is your favorite place to travel to in the world? And like, what's your dream excursion or voyage? So my top three countries of now have been, one is Japan. I absolutely adore Japan. It is one of the most cleanest, most beautiful countries I've been to. And the people are just the most generous and kind-hearted. I love Japan. The second most amazing trip I did was in Patagonia in South America, in Argentina and Chile. We trekked a glacier. We spent a lot of days there and it's just very magical. There's no other way to explain Patagonia. And it's a trip that I highly encourage everyone to take once in their lifetime. You will not regret it. Then the third 
you're going to be surprised. I just recently came back from Russia and I was blown away by how much I ended up liking Russia. Um, I'm a huge history buff. And so I try to go to countries where I could learn from and really appreciate the history. Like Scotland was another country I thoroughly enjoyed because it has a really dense history. So you're walking around and you can envision all the wars that happen. Great. Scotland is my relative's homeland. My dad was born there and my all my grandparents were born there. Oh, have you been? I love Scotland. I have not. I've wanted to go there. Uh, relatives have gone. My brother's gone. I just haven't made it over there yet. It's beautiful. Honestly, I... I, like I said, I love history and Scotland itself is so gorgeous. If it wasn't so cold, I would definitely move there. But I went in summertime and the high was like 55. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, I can't, can't make the move. <laughs> yeah. Summer in Scotland, 55. You're wearing sunscreen for that too. So you don't burn your white pasty Scottish skin. <laughs> you mentioned earlier that you made a cake inspired by a certain children's book and movie series written by a well-known British author. Can you explain a little bit how you worked your magic to create that cake? Yes. And I'll be honest, one of the reasons I went to Scotland was because I wanted to go to that cafe where she wrote the books. Ah. Wow. <laughs> Picture there. And, you know, when you're walking around Edinburgh, you definitely could see what inspired her imagination. I mean, you're just walking around Hogwarts, basically. So I'm a huge Harry Potter nerd. I love Harry Potter. Um, I've read the books easily three to four times each. Wow. And I never get tired. Every time I open the book, I read something new. I notice something I hadn't noticed before. And it's just one of the most, I, I read a lot and I tell everyone this may sound silly, but to me, the Harry Potter series is one of the best written stories I've ever come across. It is. It's amazing. Yeah. And the final book, oh man, that it's just amazing. It makes you go through all sorts of emotions. I've been in business 10 years and believe it or not, I had one Harry Potter request and that was last year. <laughs> and so she, she was a repeat client. I had made a Dr. Seuss cake for her previously. And what I love about this one client is that she doesn't restrict artistry or creativity. So she just gave me a budget, which was very fair. And I told her, I was like, listen, you're my only Harry Potter cake order in 10 years. I'm going to go extra. I don't care that you haven't paid me for this. It might be the one and only cake I ever make for Harry Potter. So I'm going all out. She's like, okay. So I sat there and the design of the cake took me a month. I really wanted to incorporate everything I could into this cake from all the books and all the movies. And so my mom doesn't really understand the Harry Potter. <laughs> and so I was like, you know what? If you're going to help me, you have to love Harry Potter. So I made her sit down and watch all the movies back to back. Background research. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. She had to do it. She had to do it. And from there, she knew, she now understood the magic of Harry Potter. And we sat down and I really wanted to do something daring. I really wanted that hall. And if you haven't seen the movie or read the books, there's this magical dining hall in mm -hmm. Hogwarts yeah. with floating candles. And that's where um, a lot of the scenes happen. And it's such an iconic part of the books and the movies. Mm -hmm. and I really wanted it on the cake. And I just, I struggled with the engineering with it, right? Because in order to do it, you had to shave it into the cake. And so because I knew that part was going to take a long time, I convinced my client to let me make that part out of styrofoam. 
But even with styrofoam, I was removing the stability of the cake, right? Because I'm, I'm mm-hmm. making it concave and there were still going to have tiers of cake on top of it. So I had to worry about the balance and everything. But either way, I made the dining hall. And it looks just like the dining hall. I don't know if you guys have seen pictures of the cake. I have on your Instagram. It's totally amazing. Everyone needs to go and check out her Instagram and see the Harry Potter cake. It just will blow you away. Question that just came to my head is, do you have a Harry Potter wand? No, actually, I don't. (laughs) I'm, I'm one of those weird people where if I really love something, I don't have that much of it. I like to make it special. <laughs> so right. I try not to be surrounded by it. But um, it's funny because the, the client kept all of the sculpted parts of it or the and the fake tears. And she recently called me and she's like, hey, so now that my kids are being booted out of school because of all the shutdowns, I don't have room for all of their equipment and storage. Do you want the cake? And I was like, hell yeah, I want the cake. Wow. So now yeah. it's sitting in my living room. And I love it. Every time I see it, I just love it. And my favorite tier out of all of them is actually the topmost with the books. I just um, made up the magical book titles and sculpted them out. And there's little monsters popping out and 3D features. And it's my favorite cake ever in 10 years of baking history. So let me ask you, so many creative people have voices in their heads. How do you get inspiration for your cakes? That is a really good question. So... It's easy when the client tells me the theme that they want and I do my research, right? I go online and I try to see what kinds of cakes were made with that theme because I don't like to repeat other people's work. And it's, it's kind of weird. There's a saying that they claim Michelangelo had said, and it goes something along the lines of, I just carved at the rock until the angel broke free. So I feel like I'm the same with the cakes. I start with a blank canvas and the cake just tells me what it wants to look like. And I just follow that feeling as I'm sculpting in it. And, you know, it it changes, which is why I love when clients don't restrict creativity, because sometimes their vision is not the best vision. And it's best to just trust the cake artist and let them decide what looks best on a cake. I'm actually getting chills on my neck and I'm actually getting tears because if you look at my notes, it says, today we are interviewing the Michelangelo of the baking world. What? That was, (laughs) yes, that was going to be our introduction that we record before we speak with you. So it's perfect. Now you gave me chills. (laughs) Yeah. Please introduce our listeners to David Tutera and how did you become one of his go-tos for cakes? So David Tutera was one of the primary wedding event planners. Now the market's a little saturated. You go on Instagram and Pinterest and everyone's event planner. But David Tutera was always the go-to. And believe it or not, the David Tutera team found me through Yelp. So did Gordon Ramsay, wow. actually. So they they just yelped cake artist. And because I had a five-star standing, they reached out to me and they asked me if I wanted to participate on their TV show. And I never turned down TV. I love TV. And so um, I made a cake for one of his episodes and it was a Narnia theme. And it was freaking magical what he did. I mean, I went to deliver the cakes and I swear I was in Narnia. He, it was 
was a hot summer's wow. day, but he converted the entire backyard of that home into a snowing forest. <laughs> so it was kind of weird oh, to be hot and gosh. walking through snow. <laughs> but, but yeah, he just converted it into that forest and what he did was pure magic. Do you have photos of that? Because Narnia, when I was growing up, was my favorite book series. Oh, mine too. I would love to see that. I, I do have photos. Um, I have them on. I, I'll, I'll definitely send you pictures to see. I don't think I've ever uploaded them to Instagram. Or if they did, they're so... It was back in 2014. So you really have to scroll back. But um, the, the birthday party was for two twins. Or one pair of twins. A boy and a girl. And so they each mm -hmm. got their own cake. And so for the for the boy, I did um, a, a stack of books. I, I made a desk. Oh, my so gosh. on the desk, you saw all seven books. Or no, well, it was a six pile book. And then he was reading one. And so that cake was an open book. And I made a pop up. So it was the scene where they just entered Narnia and they see the fawn. So it's a pop up. Wow. And I I don't remember the artist's name. Oh, I wish I did. I follow him on Facebook and I credited him and I told him, hey, you totally inspire me because he gets books that people don't read and he makes pop-ups out of them. So he makes art out of the papers. And so I mimicked that. And so I sculpted the font out of fondant and it was 2D, right? And so then I, I got the written portions of the story for that scene and I printed them out on edible paper and I pasted them on the fondant. So you're reading that scene, but it's a pop-up and everything oh is gosh. like book letters or, or the sentences. I don't know if I'm explaining this properly. You have to see it to see what I mean. It sounds amazing. Yeah, it was really cool. And so I added some 3D elements like the, the lamppost that I made in 3D, not 2D. So it was definitely a cool book. And then for his sister, I made, um, I think it was an octagon cake. It was either, I think, no, I'm sorry. It was a hexagon. And so it was a two-tiered and each panel of the cake had a different scene of the book. So again, I printed them out on edible paper. And so when you look at the cakes, you're looking at the books. That was a sweet cake. So I just wanted to bring up that you did a cake for Hell's Kitchen. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the cake you did and that experience? Yeah. So that's actually a really funny story. I was uh, working on an Alice in Wonderland cake and my friend was visiting. And while she was there, my phone rang. And so I stopped working on the cake and I answered the phone. Girl on the other line, she's like, hey, are you available to make a cake? And I was like, sure, what's this for? She's like, Gordon Ramsay's Hell's Kitchen. I didn't believe her. <laughs> and I was like, really, this is for Gordon Ramsay? And she's like, yes. I was like, how did you find me? Because, you know, Gordon Ramsay, me, where's the connection here? <laughs> so right. she's all like, well, it's an emergency and we're filming in Van Nuys. And so I yelped cake businesses and you popped up. And I was like, okay, yelp to the rescue once again. And as you guys remember earlier in this podcast, I told you guys I'm self-taught, right? I didn't go to culinary school. I just learn as I go. And so she's all like, we need a brown butter cake for the season finale. And I was like, Brown butter. I was like, what, what the heck is a brown butter cake? Mm -hmm. And my friend is dying, right? She's hearing this entire interaction and she wants to kill me at this point for being this honest. And she's all like, and so the, the girl on the phone, she's like, oh, just Google a recipe and make us one. Are you able to do it? I was like, sure. She's like, okay, great. We need it at 6 a.m. tomorrow. <laughs> so I was like, okay. <laughs> so we hang up and I Google brown butter recipes and um, 
They needed cheat cakes. I don't know how much of this I could share with the public because they never made me sign non-disclosures. But, you know, once you're on TV, you, you kind of know the rules. And so I won't say what they needed it for. You know what? You can share away. <laughs> yeah. So I, I won't say what they needed it for, but they I, I did end up Googling a recipe for brown butter and learning what brown butter was. And I delivered at six in the morning. and. When I saw the set and I saw that it really did say Gordon Ramsay's Hell's Kitchen, I was like, oh, I really did just pay for Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> so then I got nervous, right? Because we all know how he is. Yep. So the next day I, I called her back and I was like, how did it go? She's like, he loved it. I was like, really? Could I get that in writing? Because I want to tell people that Gordon Ramsay loved my cake. And she's like, no, unfortunately, we can't do that. I was like, damn it. <laughs> so it was a, a unique experience for sure. And, you know, again, I was surprised how often Yelp was finding me opportunities and you wouldn't believe it, but it does. What or who were you in a previous life? That is so funny that you asked that question, because just like Carol said that she called me the Michelangelo of cakes, I just finished filming a YouTube tutorial where I said, in a past life, I must have been Asian because I love to cook Asian food. Because I was the video was about Thai coconut chicken. Um, so it's just funny timing with the question. Mm. Hypothetically, or who I would want to be. I definitely was an architect of sorts. I have so many interests in life and so many different passions right now in, in this life that for sure, I've had several different encounters. I don't know how to answer this question because... I definitely feel that I've gone through a hundred plus lives and I'm just not done learning because I love to pick up new hobbies and pick up new trades and share them back with the world. I feel like people just don't test themselves as much as they could. Well, it's interesting this relationship that you're sharing with Carol because Carol is Asian and her first husband, he was an architect. No way! <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. I keep getting chills. It's like so crazy. Carol, I think I think the stars I think the stars are trying to tell you something here. <laughs> I know. I think we have to definitely meet. You know where we could meet? We could go to a sound bath class. How about that? Oh my gosh, it's so funny you say that because my sister and her husband do sound baths. Yeah, so I've gone to, we, Scott and I have found a sound bath class that we've gone to twice at the meditation center in Santa Monica called Unplugged. So we totally love sound baths. But please tell us about your spiritual life. My mom raised us very spiritually as children. She didn't baptize us. She wanted us to grow up and make our own decisions. And what she did encourage us was to rely on our sixth sense and, and what we call the witchy sense. And so I'm Armenian. And in the Armenian culture, coffee reading is something that is huge. So we have we call it Armenian coffee, but, you know, the Turks will call it Turkish coffee. The Greeks call it the Greek coffee, but it's all the same coffee. And it comes in an espresso sized cup. And so you drink it up and you're not supposed to share the cup because the fortune at the end is yours alone. And if someone else drinks from your cup, then you can't read your cup anymore. So um, you drink the coffee till there's a little bit of grind left and you flip the cup over, you let it cool and someone reads it. I do coffee readings up. Uh, Almost all Armenians do coffee readings. And so you lift it up and you basically connect with the cup and you read whatever is coming out to the person. 
And so that's the kind of world I grew up with. I have never heard of that. That is so, no, we have to do that. I have never heard of that. It sounds so interesting. Yeah. And it's, it's creepy how accurate it can be. I get creeped out when people tell me that what I read came true. And so you just have to trust the spirit guide, right? And so um, we love past lives. I'm a huge fan of Brian Weiss. And actually, in a podcast I started with my boyfriend, we um, discussed Brian Weiss a little bit, and he's a bit of a skeptic. And so I brought in my sister to talk more about Brian Weiss, because she was trained by him for past life medita- uh, guided meditations and guided past life regressions. And so um, huge believers here I in, in my house. And so from there, um, my sister and her husband started sound baths. And I'll be honest, the first time I experienced a sound bath, it was really hard for me to focus. It was an hour long and I kept getting anxiety. And according to my sister, that means I have pent up emotions that need to be released. And I was like, okay, maybe sure. I should do this a few more times, but um, it was hard for me to focus a little bit. And so with time though, she practiced more of, um, she has the the bowls and she'll, she'll do some musical therapy on me. And if I have a headache, she'll have me lie down and she does the, the whole bowl vibration and it does work. And so I'm very open to all of that. And honestly, I, I am deeply spiritual. I think everything's connected. Mm-hmm. I think you meet people at a certain time in your life to learn something from them. And um, you don't know what that lesson is in that moment, but you figure it out later on how those connections work. Mm-hmm. For example, I was um, digging through Gmail recently and I don't remember what I was searching for, but it popped up this old 2008 email And it was from the husband of the Harry Potter client. And in that email, I was like, oh, that's weird. Mm. 2008, why was I talking to him? And in in the email from him, it says, Chantal, this is blah, blah, blah. We met at the engineering network event. I know you're looking for work. Because right, 2008, that's when the recession happened. I wanted to let you know that this company was hiring. Mm. And it's funny because I'm now currently working at that company that he mentioned in 2008. And they became my cake clients. And so it's just weird how all these connections make sense later on, but in the moment you aren't aware of it. So um, when you change your mentality on life and you're more spiritual and you go with the flow, um, you tend to work better with what is thrown your way. And with the mentality of, okay, I don't understand Mm -hmm. what's going on now, but I will later, let me just truck through this. Everything happens for a reason. The, and, and I always say when I do motivational speaking, which I also do, I always tell people you are exactly where you are meant to be right now. Do not question that. In the future, you will look mm-hmm. back and understand why you're going through all the experiences you currently are experiencing. That's my spirituality two cents. I love that. On your blog, there's a very interesting post called The Cake Life, Why You Want to Quit and Why You Shouldn't. So you have a very interesting link for bakeries and those wanting to open a business on your website under the tab shop. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So when you are intimately involved in the cake community, as I am, you see we're all part of private Facebook groups and inevitably someone always breaks down and says they want to quit. They're tired. They're, there's no life balance and they're frustrated. And so I stepped in and I asked them, I was like, listen, 
why do you think you're tired? And they're like, well, I'm doing 10 to 20 cakes a week. And I was like, that's a lot of cakes. How much are you profiting? And people just couldn't give me a right answer. And, and there's this misconception in life that just because you're busy, you're profitable. And I have to break mm-hmm. it down to them and say, no, listen, you have to get all your expenses, all your overhead, all your time. And from there, you have to decide what your pricing is. Because if you're not having a profit margin, you're just wasting your time. And if you're making 20 cakes a week, you're either amazing or you're so cheap that everyone wants you. Mm-hmm. Not everyone takes this well, right? There's this pride in, in the artist community, but the ones who listen, they end up increasing their price. And so my advice is before you quit, start with simple changes. Increase your price margin, make a profit, take less cakes for more profit, which is what I always did. You know, when I was doing the cakes full time, I was doing one to four cakes a month on really busy months. I did almost 10 but I didn't want to spend all my time in the kitchen, right? I wanted to spend quality time in the kitchen, make my money and then go out and enjoy life because why else would you have your own business if you're tied to the kitchen all the time and you don't have the freedom to do everything else? Right. And so that was my advice to them. And then at that point, if you're still feeling like you're not enjoying it, then take a step back. I took a step back. I, I went back to engineering because I wasn't done with that. It's a, it's a true passion of mine. And I was like, you know what? I'm at a good place right now. The bakery has made a name for itself. Let me go focus on engineering. And in the meantime, continue uploading to YouTube and teaching everyone else what I've learned along the way. So my goal in this next year is to release my recipes that people would order and be like, hey, why don't you guys try to make this at home instead of ordering from other people? Because I also love when parents bake for their kids, you know, and uh, my mom did. She would make all of our cakes for our birthdays, mainly because we were poor at the time. But, um, you know, she was really good at it. And those are my favorite memories that my own mom would make me my cake. Right. And so I try to encourage that from people. It's like even if it's the crappiest cake ever, kids will love it because you made it and it's a memory for them. And I really want to encourage that more this year. I noticed that you do that through your YouTube channel and you started a new segment last week about pandemic baking. Tell us what recipes you have there and what else are you planning to post? Sure. So I'm going to sadly have to change the name of that series because YouTube keeps flagging my videos. (laughs) I think it's because I'm using the word pandemic. And so I'm changing the series to In the Kitchen with Chantal. And so the whole concept behind that is that um, for real-time viewers, you all know that right now markets are shut. People are panic buying. You can't find all the supplies and ingredients that you normally would. And so about two weeks ago when all this was going on, I was like, you know what? Let me show people how easy it is to cook with basic ingredients because you don't really have to go all out. And so I go something as basic as a chia pudding, which really takes two ingredients. If you're not adding flavors, three, if you're adding a fruit like I did, I added banana to lentil stew, which is my favorite go to. And when I explain the recipe to coworkers, they think it's overwhelming and hard. And I always try to tell them, no, it's really easy. Let me show you. And so I was like, let me show the world. And so I have recipes for cooking and baking. I have a recipe coming up with preserved lemons, which is basically preserved in its own salt so that you can later cook with the rind. 
Um, I'm currently editing a video on how to make Thai coconut chicken breast. And in these videos, it's very different than my baking videos. In my baking videos, I'm very professional. I'm very exact. I'm a detail oriented, right? Because you're working on, on cake orders. But over here, I'm trying to target the casual crowds, people who are stuck at home right now and don't care for exactness. And I try to encourage people to listen to their palate. And um, I cook by eye. And I try to walk people through what the measurements would be like if they were trying to measure things out. But in the, in the videos, I say, hey, listen, a great chef always tastes their work. So taste as you're doing things and change the flavors so your palate likes it. And that's what I'm going for now. People to experiment more in the kitchen and stop being so afraid of cooking. I'm surprised how few people cook. Yeah, absolutely. Those are great tips. I just wanted to ask you one final question here. And that's if you could tell our listeners where to find you. How can they get in touch with you? You mentioned your YouTube channel. We've mentioned Instagram. If you can give a shout out to all of those so people can connect with you. Sure. So on YouTube, I, I did a little bit of an overhaul and it was previously named Shakar Baker but I changed it to my first name, Chantal Derbogosian. But if you just search for Shakar Bakery, it'll still pop up because it's linked to all my videos. And the reason I changed the YouTube video, I mean, the YouTube channel name is because now I have playlists. Like I said, I started a podcast with my boyfriend. So I have a playlist called the Chantal and Ulysses podcast. Then I have a playlist for the Shakar Bakery videos. And I have a playlist for all my travel videos because I am an avid traveler. Mm -hmm. So since I do the motivational speaking, I wanted to give a platform that was more diverse than just the baking and why lose my subscribers and start a new channel. So I merged them all. Right. So you could search either for Chantal Derbogosian or Shakar Bakery. And then on Instagram uh, for the baking, you could just search for Shakar Bakery and find me. If you're more interested in the motivational speaking and travels, I have a separate Instagram called Chantalisms. And then on Facebook, again, same as YouTube, you can find me either as Chantal Derbogosian or as Shakar Bakery for the business page. And I do also have the website www.shakarbakery.com. Thank you so much. We are going to put those links in the podcast notes and also a recipe for the banana chia seed pudding, which you sent to us earlier. So thank you, Chantal, so much for your time. We really enjoyed speaking with you and I can't wait to meet you in person. Thank you. Likewise, we definitely have to meet up. There is too much connection going on in this podcast. Thank you so much, Chantal. Thank you. Have a great one. Thank you to Chantal of Shakar Bakery again for your time and connection. I cannot wait to meet you to get my coffee grounds read. Make sure you take a look at her guest chef blog on thisisyou.com where she shows us first how to do some pandemic cooking. You'll also be able to check out all the details of her magical giant Harry Potter cake that took her 300 hours to build. We'd love to hear your food stories or ways that you are connecting with family and friends or any questions or observations. We all want to belong to a community and connect, especially at this time. And we want to offer up our ears and hearts to you. You can always call us at the This Is You hotline at 562-291-6037. Sorry, Carol, I wasn't paying attention. What was that phone number again? 562 291 6037. Our home base is www.thisisyou.com. 
com. Instagram is at this is you official. You spelled Y-U official O-F-F-I-C-I-A-L. Our Facebook group is at this is you VIP community. We leave you with one final thought from Dumbledore as he said to Harry in the Chamber of Secrets. It is our choices that show us what we truly are far more than our abilities. Another way to say this is One's intentions are the bedrock of one's identity, not one's capabilities. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Bye.